You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Now, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have condemned the terrorist attacks on Kabul airport that killed dozens of people. Officials say at least 13 US troops were killed, and the Associated Press is reporting the bodies of at least 95 Afghans were taken from the scene of the attacks. Speaking yesterday, Johnson said there could be more attacks. Perhaps what it proves is the difficulty that any uh, government is going to have in running Afghanistan and the threats that any government is going to continue to face. Well, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has confirmed the British forces have entered the final stages of evacuating people from Kabul. Processing facilities at the Barron Hotel have been closed and no more people will be called to the airport. Wallace expressed deep regret that it's not been possible to evacuate everyone during the process. More than 13,000 people have been airlifted to the UK. Right, well, let's get to the subject of our special programme, which is the concerns that a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan could become again a haven for terrorists. The horrific scenes at Kabul airport last night are across all of the front pages this morning. Western intelligence had been warning for days about the chances of a terrorist attack, but the chaos around the airport perimeter didn't allow much in the way of precautions. The loss of U.S. service personnel is going to increase pressure on President Biden over what many had seen as a botched withdrawal process. But the bomb blasts also crystallized the fear that many have been expressing a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan could provide a vacuum into which groups like Daesh and al-Qaeda could return. The irony being, the course, that it was to avoid that that the U.S. got involved in Afghanistan in the first place. Well, joining us now is Dr. Tim Wilson, who's director of the Handa Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at St. Andrews University. Tim, thanks for being with us. Welcome to the programme. Uh, first of all, the latest attacks appear to have been carried out by part of ISIS or Daesh or IS, ISIS-K. What do we know about them? Thanks very much for having me on um, and to talk about these, these horrific events that we're all trying to make some sense of. What do we know about... Um, ISK, and, and you're right, of course, that uh, the, the multiple names doesn't, doesn't help. I mean, essentially, Islamic State, Khorasan, is a, an affiliate, a sort of franchise, if you like, from uh, the Islamic State that, of course, tried to build a sort of Islamist utopia, a caliphate in, in um, 
Iraq and Syria a few years back. So they're a, a spin-off or, or, or franchise of that wider movement. Um, they're not too old. They date back to January 2015 in Afghanistan. They've traditionally been stronger in the north and east of the country, uh, but they were put under severe pressure by both the U.S. forces and the, the Taliban in t- sort of 2019. But from early 2020, uh, they've begun to uh, rebuild. Most estimates one sees put their numbers in high hundreds, low thousands, about 2,200 is... Um, one common estimate one sees of their strength, which is down a little bit from the 3,000 they may have boasted in the early years. Um, so they're not, uh, they're not huge, um, but they are utterly ruthless in the IS tradition. And um, they have made, a, they've had already made a pronounced shift towards sort of urban terrorism, which they're clearly capable of, of carrying out fairly sophisticated versions of, albeit under, for them, fairly ideal circumstances, it has to be said. How do, how do they interact with, with the Taliban? Are they sworn enemies? Are there pacts in certain parts of the country? What's the interaction between the, the, the different groups? That uh, is murky. I mean, I think the big picture is that they are rivals. Um, you know, the Taliban did not welcome this, and it's embarrassing for them, and that clearly is a large part, I imagine, of the um, of the strategic choice to, to go for this uh, really spectacular slaughter at the airport. You know, this is an attack that is not just aimed at the West, it is aimed at the Taliban. And in terms of, uh, so, you know, there seems to be a sort of element of trying to outflank the Taliban and appeal to a constituency um, that wants to go for a more sort of uh, internationalist interpretation of um, of jihad. So, I mean, insofar as one can try and make sense of a chaotic situation, the, the Taliban did make guarantees to the Trump administration that they would uh, essentially kind of have America's back in counter-terrorist terms, if I can put it that way. Um, you know, ISIS, ISK are, are very much uh, showing that... Um, you know they're not going to they're not going to accept that without uh, a, a major challenge. So they are essentially rivals, but as is often the case in these sort of Islamist subcultures that that range over Afghanistan and Pakistan, that is not to say that there aren't um, also sort of points of contact and links and ideological overlap to some degree uh, in in the background. Um, the so-called Haqqani network is is meant to have links with both, but but to say the big picture is. They're essentially enemies of the Taliban. Okay, so we, we, we've talked about IS or ISIS-K or whatever one calls them, but of course there's also Al-Qaeda. They were the reason the U.S. went into Afghanistan in the first place back in 2001. They've, they, they've disappeared a lot more from the headlines than, than, than they were, in obviously, you know, 10 years ago. Are they still a threat? Are they still in Afghanistan? Yes, we think they are still in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, it, it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, their links with the, the groups that became the Taliban, the Taliban didn't emerge till sort of autumn of 1994 uh, in the war that followed the Soviet withdrawal. Um, but uh, the links between uh, elements from those groups and the elements of what then became Al-Qaeda, you know, go back into the 1980s. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda, the base in, in Arabic, was a, a really quite experimental project to 
understand uh, jihad against the Soviets in very internationalist terms, to, to go global, so to speak, and to see jihad as a global struggle, not, not a struggle that was just concentrated in one country or one region, uh, as um, many of the Soviet Mujahideen fighters back then saw it, but as, but as something that had global resonance and glo- global pretension. So there was an overlap of common purpose uh, back then, but with different emphases. You know, the Taliban were always more focused on Afghanistan, and it looks like they've reverted to that. So I think there is comradeship there. There is um, shared history, um, but there are also tensions. And, you know, let's not forget that it seems pretty clear that the Taliban 20 years ago did not know 9-11 was happening. Al-Qaeda sprung that on them. They lost power for 20 years. It's been a hard road for them to win it back. Um, And, you know, I think to some degree that it seems relatively clear that the Taliban uh, leadership under Baradar, you know, don't want to go back to to those old days. Uh, How much they're fully in control of... um, a volatile post-conflict situation, even of the Al-Qaeda networks, how much influence they have them under is, is uh, you know, also unclear. Also worth saying, though, that, you know, Al-Qaeda is not the organization that had the luxury of embedding in the late 90s in Afghanistan. It, it, it suffered major attrition. Uh, you know, its cadres of leadership from bin Laden downwards have been sort of fairly shredded, uh, with the exception of Al-Zahiri. He's the only kind of survivor, but he's probably in very poor health. Yes, they can still uh, pose a threat. There was an attack um, a couple of months back in, in America, but it was pretty, uh, pretty unsophisticated, kind of lone actor stuff. Um, so, you know, they're not in a position to stage another 9-11 as far as we can see, and it seems like the Taliban wouldn't want to let them to, but wouldn't want to let them either. But, you know, the, the, the longer future is, is indeed murky. With the West gone, what's the danger that Afghanistan becomes a key base now for, for, for these groups, for ISIS-K and perhaps like Al-Qaeda? Um, I mean, I think it's it's pretty real. I don't say that it's a straight line. I think the Taliban um, are not going to be ousted from power. They're not going to let uh, ISIS-K, I think, have the kind of room for manoeuvre that they let al-Qaeda 25 years ago have. Um, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But I think any turbulent, um, compromised state, and, you know, let's not forget Afghanistan has a history of about 30 years in the middle of the 20th century where something like a um, something like a functioning government uh, exercised some control over most of the country. I mean, it, it is not. State building has been uh, bumpy, to say the least, and often fairly non-existent. So from that point of view, anything that keeps the pot boiling from a sort of ISK point of view is, um, you know, is, is welcome, and they will certainly try and push hard for that. So, uh, you know, it, it, there could be lots of infighting between these Islamist groups, between the Taliban and the ISK. That's already started and probably will continue. How much, um, how much room that leaves for going global and exporting this kind of terror, we'll we'll have to see. But uh, you know, the, the, this was an open goal for ISK. Yeah. I mean, the scenes at the airport, the the crowds, it, it you know just compounds Western humiliation. So well, you need know, well, to beat terrorism, you clearly haven't. Well, on that point, and briefly, if you would, Tim, what about the pressure from the neighbours? The pressure from China, the pressure from Pakistan. They would probably not want Afghanistan to become a base for these groups, would they, for their own reasons? That's right. ISK are not uh, not friends of those countries either. Um, so from that point of view, they, you know, they 
and they're much better positioned, of course, to do deals with the Taliban. They don't have the previous history in the same way. So, uh, you know, I think we can see a, a sort of massive surge, of, a likely surge of Russian and Chinese influence in the, in the region. Um, you know, geopolitics like nature reports of that. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk now about the concerns over how you prevent money going to the new groups, because money is what lies behind a lot of this. One of the key questions is finance. How would groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh acquire the money they need? Well, joining us now is Tom Keating, Director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI. Thanks uh, so much for joining us on the programme today. Just let's start with the basics. Where, a complicated question, but where does the money come from for, for these groups like uh, ISIS-K? Well, it, it, it's a good question um, because there isn't a, a generic answer. I think you have to look at the way individual groups operate. Uh, and I would put really there being two main uh, categories. There are groups that operate like organized crime groups. You know, they're, they're running rackets, they're moving money around uh, the world. Then you've got groups, and this is really what we're talking about in the current situation, that control territory. And they essentially live off the financial land that they, they control. And we've seen the Taliban very successfully survive for 20 years uh, by living off the territory. And then other emerging groups, Islamic State, you mentioned when they were in Syria and Iraq, they were living off the oil that they were managing to uh, get out of the ground. So it, it's kind of all about what resources or what access to resources do these groups have. And then they, they cut their cloth accordingly. Is it not also true, though, Tom, that there are individuals in, in Gulf countries, potentially, who, under the, uh, under the covers, perhaps, give money to them directly, almost as a kind of religious duty or feel that they should, and they just transfer money into groups like Al-Qaeda or Daesh? Yes, I mean, that's certainly the, the case. Um, there is this concept of, in a way, conducting jihad with your money. You know, if you're not able to go and fight in these regions for whatever reason, then, you know, just, just give us some money and support. And, I mean, that was a critical element in the early days of, of al-Qaeda, and certainly there are some people around now who you know, very uh, openly uh, admit that they, they were fundraisers for, for al-Qaeda and the like back in the day. So, yes, I think donors play a role. But I do sometimes wonder whether we get a bit hung up on the donors. Of course, we should make sure that those donors aren't active, that those donors aren't undertaking what they're undertaking. But when you look at the numbers, um, Islamic State is one example, the Taliban is another. When you look at the numbers, it's, it's living off the land, which basically um, helps these, these, groups, uh, these groups survive. That's not to downplay uh, the role of donors, but I wouldn't want to uh, overplay. Obviously, ISIS control uh, far less territory uh, in the region than they did before. How much money, uh, if you like, do they have from in the bank from before? Do do we have any idea of their resources or is that just too difficult to tell? We we don't. I mean, the numbers that float around um, are our fingers in the in the wind. I mean, what what we what we do know 
um, is that they were very effective at, uh, say, extracting uh, rent, extortion, um, uh, ransoms uh, from 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 kidnap, and the the industries, particularly in the case of, of ISIS, originally oil um, under their control. In the case of Taliban, uh, there we've got the the mining, uh, we've got the the opium trade, um, that those other industries that that Afghanistan unfortunately um, specialises in. And I see the critical thing here, I think people often focus on the revenue. They've got $1.6 billion uh, to, to, to play with. Well, that might be true. It might not be true. The question that people never really look at is, yeah, but what do they have to spend that money on? Because, of course, revenue is only one side of the equation. Expenses are what you need to spend revenue on. And when you become uh, an organisation of government, which the Taliban has done, you, of course, inherit uh, an awful lot of expenses that you need to cover. What then about the mineral resources in Afghanistan? Because this interests me a lot. There's certain areas not far from Kabul, from what I hear, with uh, minerals, lithium, copper, uh, things that could be exploited. Uh, but I suppose it depends who actually controls them, whether it's the Taliban or whether it's one of these other groups. Can that be utilised to produce income? Well, the, the, the UN uh, panel that monitors uh, Afghanistan-related sanctions, and, and, uh, and the Taliban in particular, in their most recent report, I think in June, uh, they, they noted that the Taliban already controlled territory containing, I think it's 280 of the country's 709 mining zones. So that 280 has now become 709 because they control the whole country. Now, it's no good getting stuff out of the ground, of course, if you can't sell it. I've seen some people say that there's up to a trillion dollars of you know, mineral reserves in, in Afghanistan. I saw another quote that uh, Afghanistan is a Saudi Arabia of, of lithium. Um, but obviously, once you've got that out of the ground, you've got to export it. You've got to have the technology to get it out of the ground. And then you've got to find a market for it. And I think that's going to be the interesting uh, issue to watch in the coming months. You are neighboring countries that are um, hungry for mineral resources, like China is the obvious one. Are they going to step in and provide financial support to uh, the Taliban government, financial support which perhaps they weren't providing previously in the context of this opportunity to extract those minerals? I think that's a big open question. Mm. What about state actors giving funding to, to these groups? Well, uh, you know, it's... it's it's, it's an unfortunate reality, but the, the degree of corruption that there has been in Afghanistan in the last 20 years, uh, very well-documented corruption, uh, related to international donor funds from the US, from the EU, from the UK, and other sort of concerned Western countries. You know, unfortunately, much of that money has found its way into the wrong hands, including, uh, without, without doubt, uh, the, the Taliban. Now, that international aid has been switched off. So not only does that debilitate uh, the national economy in Afghanistan, but it also um, it cuts off a source of revenue that I'm quite certain the Taliban will have been benefiting from. So will we see financial support from others who are not part of the Western coalition, who actually are probably quite delighted to see the mess that the West has got itself into uh, in Afghanistan and may step in to fill the vacuum? I mean, China has been very effective at using finance as a tool of diplomacy around the world, whether it's in Africa or in, in South America. Afghanistan is right on their door. There are obviously security concerns for China in the context of Afghanistan, but finance has proved to be a really effective tool uh, for the Chinese, and I would fully expect them to find ways of trying to use that tool uh, with their neighbour. 
Okay, we've talked about the sources of money and money coming in, but what about attempts to, to block it? Because if it comes to al-Qaeda or, or ISIS or possibly also the Taliban, uh, there is a financial system in which they operate. Can the West, can the US with its power in that area, do anything to prevent the money going to them, find ways of stopping it? Yeah, so the, the, the first thing in any analysis you do of these kinds of groups, the first thing is you have to map out the extent to which they rely on the international financial system. And we can debate that, but there's no doubt that they will rely on the international financial system to some extent. Indeed, um, as we know, the, the central bank's reserves that are held offshore have been have been frozen. So immediately uh, the Taliban has suffered a significant financial haircut. Then there are the sanctions regimes. It's worth remembering that, that the first sort of anti-terrorist sanctions regime um, set up by the, by the UN on a global basis were actually against the Taliban um, in 1999, so even before 9-11. And that was on the back of the embassy bombings in East Africa, the US embassy bombings in East Africa, the bombing of the USS Cole. Uh, and people were already realizing that the Taliban were harboring al-Qaeda and needed to, be, um, needed to be dealt with. Now, that means that these sanctions have been around for 20 years. They're, they're not the, the smartest, most sophisticated sanctions. Um, technology, if you like, has developed. But nonetheless, they've been around for 20 years, yet the Taliban has able to survive financially. Um, now, the Taliban obviously will be more reliant on the international financial system now because they are the government in, in Afghanistan. And so I think the international community is going to have to think very carefully about how it uses sanctions. So, for example... Uh, how are we going to get humanitarian aid into that country? Because it will be a humanitarian uh, catastrophe in, in the very near term. I think already the U.S. Treasury has said that they will provide exemptions for humanitarian organizations that are trying to, to operate. So sanctions are definitely an option. The other option, uh, or the other area to look at, is how does the international banking uh, community and the remittance uh, community act? We've seen remittance companies like Western Union have announced that they have suspended services into Afghanistan because of fear that funds would go to support the Taliban. International banks will, I'm sure, be looking very, very closely uh, at their connections. You know, there, there, is, there is an international bank that is the clearinghouse, for example, for, um, for the central bank. What are they doing right now? They're facing some challenging questions. So we really do need to sit down and think about what is the financial engagement strategy uh, with Afghanistan, with the Taliban, uh, over the next three, six, 12 months, because it's going to be at the heart of what sort of Afghanistan we deal with in the future. But financially, how can uh, ISIS-K or the Taliban operate if, if they're excluded from the financial system? Presumably they have, they have ways of, uh, of making things work without that. Yeah, I mean, as, as, as I say, they, they, first of all, they live off the land, so they don't care about the international financial system. Uh, they're not, they don't have to deal with a, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, HSBC, what have you. Um, but, uh, but secondly... Uh, to the extent they need to, you know, there are plenty of ways, and again, the Taliban has mastered this, there are plenty of ways of doing so outside the formal financial sector. So lots of people talk about hawala networks, these kind of very efficient, very effective, so-called informal, but, but very effective um, ways of, of moving money around the world that doesn't touch the formal uh, financial system and can handle you know, all, the, all the, the cash flow that, 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 that the Taliban needs. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.